Welcome to Podship Perth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. Courage. What makes a king out of a slave? Courage. What makes the flag on the mast away? Courage. What have they got that I ain't got? Courage. You can say that again. Courage is the strength to withstand danger, fear, or difficulty. Courage is the ability to do something that frightens us. And it's the one thing that the lion from The Wizard of Oz desperately wanted. When it comes to protecting the environment, very few of us are courageous enough to stand up against all odds to fight for what we believe in. This week, I talked with two winners of the 2019 Goldman Prize, which for 30 years has recognized bravery, tenacity and courage, and accomplishment in the area of environmental activism. I start by meeting up with Michael Sutton, the executive director of the Goldman Prize. It's just two days before the official prize ceremony, and a great deal is happening behind the scenes to make sure everything is ready. I start by asking Mike how Rhoda and Richard Goldman came up with the idea for the prize. Well, the founders of the Goldman Prize uh, recognized that there is no Nobel Prize for the environment. They thought that was an omission. Right after they developed the idea, the Exxon Valdez ran aground in Alaska and uh, caused a major, major oil spill. And then Chico Mendez, the rubber tapper in Brazil, was killed by ranchers for trying to save his ancestral land. Those events cemented their resolve to uh, launch the Goldman Prize. It started off with a prize winner on each continent. And these are real activists who put their life on the line in many cases. So the Goldman Prize uh, each year recognizes environmental leaders and activists in each of the world's six inhabited continents. This is the 30th anniversary of the Goldman Prize, and we've given the prize to almost 200 people in nearly 90 countries around the world. One of the uh, criteria for the Goldman Prize is that the winner has to have uh, accomplished a significant environmental achievement in uh, the last three years. It's an extraordinary cohort. For example, the first year of the prize, 1990, Lois Gibbs won the Goldman Prize for exposing the Love Canal uh, crisis, which, of course, as you know, led to the Superfund statute that we use now to clean up toxic waste sites all over the country. Wangari Mathai from Kenya founded the Greenbelt Movement and uh, planted thousands and thousands of trees, uh, motivating and gathering women from East Africa. She won the Goldman Prize and a few years later uh, was honored with the Nobel Peace Prize. The real work of the Goldman Prize is to inspire millions of people around the world to do whatever they can in their own lives to make a difference. That's the real magic, I think, of the Goldman Prize. Every year there's a big event, but there's also a New York Times full-page ad. It's a big deal. The whole idea of the Goldman Prize is to raise the gravitas of our prize winners so that they can do even more in the future and that it will promote both their safety and security and the effectiveness of their work. So in terms of effectiveness, there's also the challenge of threats to them. Some have even lost their lives. This is an emerging issue for the environmental community around the world. Uh, Open briefing last year that collects statistics on this uh, suggested for the first time that 
environmental activists are under threat second only to journalists around the world. Um, more than 200 environmental activists last year were killed in the line of duty. About 20 to 30 percent of Goldman Prize winners over the years have been at some form of risk. We've had 30 or so prize winners jailed by governments. And when they're jailed, they're charged with felonies. They're not charged, they're not given a parking ticket. They're charged with crimes that would put them away for years. High treason, murder, assault, and so forth. Every one of them, with a few exceptions, have been released, uh, eventually either acquitted or the charges dropped. Uh, they're usually arrested to make a point that the government doesn't like what they're doing. They're arrested as, as a result of their activism. But uh, our prize winners are also uh, threatened by corporate security forces and so forth, some of the corporations that don't appreciate their activism. We've had three prize winners killed in the line of duty in the last 30 years. Two were murdered by corporate security forces, and the other was uh, Ken Sarawiwa in the 1990s was executed by the Nigerian military. So uh, our goal, we, we run a defensive prize winners program at the foundation, the goal of which is to make sure that doesn't happen again. And it turns out there's a lot we can do to help guarantee their safety and security. I won't ask you what it is because I want to make sure they remain secure. Uh, tell us just very briefly about the winners this year. We have two women who work on uh, big cat conservation. Uh, Bayara Agvansaran from Mongolia uh, set aside a, an enormous nature reserve in the South Gobi Desert that's critical habitat for the uh, snow leopard. From North Macedonia, Anna Kolovic-Lasoska uh, set aside a, and protected Morovo National Park, which is critical habitat for the Balkan lynx. Our prize winner from the Cook Islands, Jackie Evans, led a program called Mare Moana, which created a, a, an enormous marine protected area that encompasses all of the waters of the Cook Islands. We have one prize winner that's not with us this year because he's in jail in Chile. Alberto Curamil is a, an indigenous Mapuche leader uh, who protected a uh, sacred river in the mountains of Chile from being dammed and destroyed by hydropower development. The government of Chile arrested him uh, and has kept him in jail since last August. And I met with a Chilean ambassador in Washington, D.C. to try to get him out of jail. Linda Garcia from the United States stopped what would have been the largest oil export terminal in the United States in, in the West Coast uh, in Vancouver, Washington. It had already been approved by the Port Commission. Alfred Brownell, the prize winner from Africa this year, is from Liberia. He's an environmental lawyer who went up against the developer of an of oil palm plantations. More than 50% of the West African remaining old growth forest is in Liberia. Alfred saved more than a half a million acres of Liberian forest by reversing the government's decision to allow the development of palm oil. Thanks to Mike, I was able to sit down with two of this year's Goldman Prize winners, Linda Garcia from Washington State and Alfred Brown from Liberia in West Africa. First, I meet up with Linda Garcia to learn about her campaign to protect her hometown from oil development. Like many Goldman winners, Linda didn't start life as an environmentalist. Um, Ten years ago, I was taking care of my family and raising my children. I was living in um, a very small neighborhood in Vancouver, Washington, and doing the things that my children loved to do and kind of minding my own business. You were trained as a social worker? Yes, that's what my ba educational background is. 
as community outreach coordinator, taking care of people that lived within the community that didn't have the resources or the skills toolboxes to help them advance in life, to either um, overcome homelessness or poverty, um, help them figure out a way out of the cyclical oppression cycle that they happen to be living in and um, give them the support and the encouragement and the empowerment that they needed to take those next steps in life to become more stable in their transition. What was the trigger for you to go from social work with your kids raising in the small town to, to right now winning the Goldman prize? Like what, what was that trajectory? Um, there were two large oil companies, uh, called Tesoro and Savage, and they combined and created a large corporate firm and they wanted to bring in North America's largest oil by export rail oil terminal, uh, processing facility to the port of Vancouver, which sits squarely within the Fruit Valley neighborhood boundaries, less than a half a mile from my home. They were coming in and threatening the safety and security of my family. Everything kind of combined and made me realize that I needed to rise up. I needed to take action on this. Um, And combined with thousands of other people over the six-year battle, um, we ended up um, helping to stop the project in its tracks and um, they won't be building there. So Linda, tell us a little bit about where this oil was coming from. This would have come down from the tar sands in Alberta, Canada, as well as South Dakota. They would have put all of that Bakken crude oil onto trains and brought them down, come through the Columbia River Gorge, um, all the way down to Vancouver, Washington. So all this oil Is it like going on trains? Like how's it, how's it getting to Washington? We refer to them as bomb trains because they are, um, what they were specifically stating was going to come through Vancouver was, uh, five unit trains per day. One unit train is about a mile and a half long, consists of 144 of the long black round cars that you see, uh, train cars going in one direction. It was 360,000 barrels of crude oil per day going directly through downtown Vancouver, Washington. But these train cars are so heavy, the oil weights them down so much that the tracks up north of us aren't safe. So the rail lines bring them straight down through the gorge, right along the Columbia River, right through the Columbia Gorge National Scenic Area, um, which is protected. At what point did you realize how big a battle this was going to be? I think it came in waves. For me, the immediate threat was just very hyper-local. It was in my own small neighborhood. The emissions from the volatile organic compounds that would have come from the stacks 24 hours a day, seven days a week from the moment that proposed terminal would have gone online. It became larger and larger the more I looked at that. Over the next several months, uh, we started seeing massive oil train derailments and horrible explosions coming from that death, destruction that wiped out entire communities. They wiped out people's families, people's livelihoods, very close to home in Mosier, Oregon, which really drove the point home of this can indeed happen. And it, it, it continued um, encouraging us to fight 
And the more stories I heard, the more people that I listened to, uh, the more I recognized that it wasn't just about me. It wasn't just about my neighborhood and my family. It was about the our union brothers and sisters in the International Longshore Workers Union. That's their livelihood. They work at the port. If anything were to happen, um, they were out of out of jobs, out of work. If anything happened along the river, an oil spill, it's impossible to clean that up. Um, you just don't get it out of there, and there's not enough money in the world that can clean that up. We have multiple tribal nations all along the river that depend on um, fishing for livelihood, for food and sustenance, for um, keeping their family going. How much was this facility going to inject into the local economy? The average that we heard was $28 billion. $28 billion. So that's, that's a lot. Billion with a B. Yes, um, that is a lot. I'm also cognizant of the fact that money cannot replace life and corporations should never put profit and greed above humanity. Um, we have to be protective, not just of the earth, but of um, the humans that live on this earth, the wildlife, everything that, that sustains us. We have to protect the sustainability and watch out for the vitality of future generations as well. So it was economy. It was all about jobs, jobs, jobs. We heard that all of the time, anywhere from 70 jobs to 180 jobs. The biggest challenge for me in speaking with my neighbors that were actually in favor of the terminal because of those jobs was explaining to them that the majority of them would be brought in from out of state. And it would be a very, very small handful of people that might get hired so in this six-year campaign that you were ultimately successful in waging, did you ever feel threatened? Yes. Um, in 2015, I started getting threatening phone calls. Um, they didn't threaten my life right away. It was more of a, you need to stop. Um, we don't want you doing what you're doing. And I kept going. And um, then it became more of, um, we know where you are. They would describe where I was. They would tell me what I was wearing. They would then tell me exactly how I was going to die, how they were going to take care of me. Um, that was terrifying. Um, it, it, you don't really have an understanding of what it's like to, to have this need to continue the fight to protect your family and your community when you're dealing with threats like that. Um, recently, they've escalated with other projects I'm working on. Um, it, it's escalated to digital security, people breaking into my home multiple times, um, being physically assaulted, um, continued death threats via the phone, being publicly harassed and threatened. The people that are doing this, they don't um, they don't take what I'm doing lightly, and I certainly don't take what they're doing lightly. Um, they're very intimidating and very threatening. Um, I keep going. It's a challenge. So back in 2015, when it first happened and you, you know, you're, you're getting death threats and they're telling you what you're wearing, where you are. Like when you talk to your husband or friends, what were they suggesting you do? Quit. Even today, I have family that are very upset with me because I do. It is a choice to do what I do. It's hard to find that balance in, in wanting to do the right thing, but knowing that I am a target 
and I am threatened all of the time. But for me, when it comes down to it, it's, it's, it's simply a matter of doing the right thing. And I'm trying to do the right thing in spite of, of everything else. Like when, when you're wrestling with these threats versus the challenge that you're trying to overcome, like where do you find the reserves inside to help you keep going? Sometimes I don't. <laughs> to be completely honest, there are multiple times that I've just, I've wanted to quit. Um, and I've ste- stepped back a little bit um, in those moments. But I think, I think for me, it's, it's some weird inner strength. I, I go outside of my area. I, I head to the mountains. I, I do my own little spiritual retreat of trying to regroup and remind myself, um, especially when I'm in that, that those locations, um, in, in my mountains, that's what re-energizes me. And it reminds me looking around that this is what I'm fighting for. I worry when I'm up there and I look at the trees and, and the lakes and I, you know, the, the earth is so quiet and still, and there's a sacredness that I can, I can feel. It's my soul. It's my heart. I hike all of the time. I can just feel the earth just asking, please protect. And so for me, it's a matter of wanting to keep that for future generations. We've been given a very precious gift with this earth. And if we can't protect that gift, what have we done? I don't have the right answer for that. I just, that's what keeps me going. I have to make sure that that gift keeps getting passed on to future generations. What does it mean to you to win the Goldman Prize? This took an army of people to do. This was people power over the power of money. It means that I get to continue on in my work and, and, use my voice in a way that I haven't ever been able to before. I get a global microphone and a global platform to say, please pay attention. Please wake up. Our time is up. Um, We have very, very little precious time to use, and I'll use it to the best of my ability to make sure that people hear me. I travel across San Francisco to the Chrissy Field Center to meet up with Alfred Brown, who's a Liberian environmental lawyer currently living in exile in Boston. Alfred, before we start, tell us a little bit about Liberia. Liberia was founded by the descendants of ex-slaves who left the United States in the early 1800s and went to Africa to try to set up a new republic. In 1989, there was then a rebellion, um, an attempt to remove the military junta that had taken over the country and tried to impose itself. And uh, that conflict uh, lasted for almost 15 years. I was personally affected by that conflict. I bear the scars of that conflict. I was born in a place called Rabbersport, brought by the single mom. And I live along the sea coast, Atlantic Ocean, and there was a lake that crisscrossed, you know, Rabbersport. 
And my mom, who was actually a single mother, didn't want me to become a fisherman. And so she did everything to stop me. And I was telling some kids, so in the morning when we get on the beach and assemble and start to do fishing, we throw the net and you haul the net onto the shore and get the fish. My mom would creep behind me and bring the cane and whip me and make sure I got to school. And so she kept doing that for many, many years and I kept being stubborn. I had an interest in biology and chemistry. When I graduated, I wanted to become a doctor very much. My mom really couldn't afford the tuition in the science college. So there was a scholarship to study agriculture and forestry. This was like 1998, 1999. By then, um, the war has ended. There was an election. Uh, the, the, the leader of the rebel movement who brought the war, Charles Taylor, who is now inducted and in prison in the United Kingdom for war crimes, he has signed contracts to sell the forestry to Asian timber companies. There were diamond mining companies coming about. It was completely crazy. They were just cutting down the forest, and I was very angry. So um, we had a group of classmates in the law school that we studied together. And so I said, let's do something about this. So the idea of green advocates was funded, and we set up this organization. And so we started to campaign to try to protect the forestry. So I devoted myself to try to investigate how timber companies had abused the laws of Liberia and abused the rest of communities to clear-cut the forest to see whether the lessons they acquired to be able to cut timber were valid lessons. Not a single company had met the minimum requirement to operate timber constructions. And so all the licenses were canceled. So none of the licenses that had been issued were actually valid? Not only that. The laws that were in place were terrible laws, not protecting the environment, not protecting communities, not allowing for benefit sharing, not respecting the rights I was asked to help the court draft the forestry laws. So you were then asked by the courts to help develop a community-based forestry system. What was the result? Setting aside 30% of the forest for production, uh, giving rights to communities, benefit sharing, allowing for more disclosure requirements more democratization, more consultation with communities, free prior informed consent. Just by way of context, when you look at a map of West Africa, you see that the majority of what was once dense forest in places like Mali or Burkina Faso and even Nigeria is now desert or savanna land. But Liberia, doesn't it have like one of the last intact forest systems? So all of that forest in West Africa was completely fragmented and destroyed. The only largest portion now remain in Liberia. And the forest in Liberia is very unique because there are two forest zones. There's an evergreen forest towards the southeastern part of the country, which is evergreen. There's a deciduous forest in the northwestern part of Liberia, somehow a little bit resembling what you see here in the Mediterranean. Very unique. In that forest, it's found some of the most endemic species. In fact, that forest, which is called the Upper Guinea Forest, is one of the biodiversity hotspots in the world. Mm. There are species of animals and trees you see, you, over 200 timber species, over 2,000 bird species. It's the only area you find the most viable population of pygmy hippos. Because the pygmy hippos, as you will know, many of those who have not studied it, is nocturnal and a very shy animal. And a very keystone species is an indication of the health of a forest. You find the chimpanzees and the forest elephants. Um, you find the, uh, the giant pangolins. That's where you find them in West Africa. And so it is this forest that was being threatened. It is the largest carbon sink in the entire region. Is the last fortress, the last shield that is protecting the onslaught of the desert that is coming towards the west from the north. If you look at North Africa, it's almost all desert. 
most of West Africa is savanna and Sahel. It's only this green necklace, this green fortress that is holding up this onslaught of this desert. It is this green fortress that is providing the oxygen that the rest of this region is surviving for. And this is why I call it the lungs of West and North Africa. So after you were able to get the court to revoke destructive forest licenses, what was the next challenge? We had a new president, the first female president elected in Africa, Ellen Johnson Salif. So she did an agenda for developing the country, and that agenda was trying to attract foreign direct investment. And most of that investment focused on forest land. And the idea was to generate revenue and to create employment. So oil palm companies who had faced challenges in Southeast Asia were invited to Liberia to set up oil palm operation. So large amount of land, unbelievable, almost a million plus hectare of forest land, signed in contracts and given to these oil palm companies with all any form of consultation, with all any form of scientific analysis in terms of how it will impact the forest ecosystem, with all any form of biological diversity or biomonitoring, they bought their aftermarket equipment, they bought bulldozers. In some communities, 150 yellow machines, aftermarket machines, moving simultaneously and crunching the forest like locusts. In an area in Grand Cape Mount County where an oil palm company called Sam W was operating, the villagers said they thought it was the end of the war. They were on their farms and they just saw those machines coming and crushing the forest and destroying the land. They had no idea where they came from because no one had consulted them. And they were so afraid. They felt very powerless that they had no control because the government had given an instruction. It's terrifying. It was terrifying. And it was not just crushing the forest. You have to understand what this forest, I just told you the significance that it meant to Liberia and the rest of the global war in terms of the environmental and climate change implications. What does it mean in terms of the social, historical, cultural, and religious, and full security significance of the indigenous people? These people look at the forest as their history, replaced by a desert of oil palm. There were villages that you stand into, and as far as the eye can see, is a desert of oil palm. Graves of traditional leaders and warriors who fought to protect the very forest, to protect the very home of those people, completely wiped off, planted in oil palm. And was there a lot of outrage? Outrage, streams and creek that flows into the villages, gave them safe drinking water re-engineered, flowing back into the oil palm. So the palm tree must drink and the indigenous people must die of thirst. And then when they ask questions on why this was going on, the companies sent in the police. They arrest them, they arrest them, they imprison them, they threaten them. They bring frivolous criminal charges Criminal trespassing. How do you charge someone with criminal trespassing on their own land? Beat them up. There's a story that I would never, ever forget. I would never forget that. And sometimes I want people in the world to know this. There's a grandmother 
She's the leader of the indigenous Buddha people. Anna too, who stood up to fight for her land, asking questions. Took her children and her grandchildren to go to the protest and say, we're not going to allow you to take this land from us. They put this drum on her, beat her up, strip her naked. Naked. When I say naked, nothing, including her panties, tore it off. Grabbed that grandmother and threw her in the back of the body's chip and imprisoned her. In a crude trial, it's a taboo, a taboo to naked someone like that. That's the price Anna paid. I had to defend those people. With all my legal, I had to find a way to defend them. So I filed this complaint. And I fought day and night to defend them. And we won. They told the community to stop clearing the land. They wouldn't stop. We went to the communities. We did our evidence-based investigation. We documented every single thing. And we found out that they were not meeting these requirements. So we filed a complaint. The independent investigations showed that our allegations were correct. They were not following those requirements. They authorized them to go back, re-engage, and follow those requirements. They were not following those requirements. And so they decided to get the government to pressure us to drop the complaints. We refused to drop those complaints. The government got angry and decided to put pressure on us. It was on one of the fact-finding missions by the roundtable that 150 armed men from the companies, while we went and inspected it, it was an international investigation on our way back. They set up a roadblock. They encircled my vehicle with my colleagues. They demanded that they wanted to cut off my head, eat my heart, and take my skull to their balls to drink the wine from out of it. They took the local chief who came and said, I'm not going to allow you to kill this man. I'm not going to allow this blood to waste on this land. If you want to kill him, take him to another village. And then one of the young persons was afraid and insulted the chief, and confusion broke up. The reason why I'm here talking to you was because of that conflict. That is one of the most terrifying stories I've ever heard. I'm just so thankful that you're here to be able to tell the story and that your legal fight to protect the forest was able to continue. And in December of 2018, the final decision came out. They are taking the appeal, won the case, and they now have a stop order that they can pursue to clear that forest anymore. So the forest is protected, or people are happy, and I'm more than motivated. So now folks ask me, are you afraid? You don't feel safe? I will still go back and do this a billion times more. I'm never afraid. So this is what happened. And there are many others across the world who are paying similar price for standing up to protect the land. How did this fight change your relationship with indigenous communities in Liberia? Sometimes how we see indigenous people who feel that these are people who are primitive people, who are poor, who know nothing about their life. That is not true. 15 years, I learned, I was schooled in how to protect the forest, in how to appreciate the rivers. And how do we respond? We kill those who are protecting it, we destroy their home, and we destroy the forest. All of us live on this planet. We have that responsibility. 
to this planet to save and protect it. And what's happening in Liberia is not just a remote thing. It has an impact right here in the United States, right here in California. Every year when people lose their home to fire, have they thought about what's happening across the globe in other areas? The trees you are destroying and cutting down are emitting greenhouse gas emissions. And they link to the forest fires here in, 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 in California. So, my dear, we are all in this boat together. A huge thank you to Alfred Brown and Linda Garcia for talking with us today and for their incredible courage. Congratulations to them and all the 2019 Goldman winners. You are truly inspiring. Thanks also to Michael Sutton for organizing the Goldman Prize and to the Goldman family for continuing the powerful legacy set by Rhoda and Richard Goldman. Above even courage, what struck me with talking with Linda and Alfred was the ability of individuals to catalyze change. These aren't rugged, maverick individualists going it alone. Rather, they're leaders that bring together coalitions to push for hard-fought change. None of us can do this alone, but each of us can look deep within ourselves to find the courage to go where we didn't think was possible. In the next episode of Podship Earth, we talk insurance, which is now at the heart of quantifying, and in many cases, paying for climate change impacts. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, production assistant Sarah Amanzada, sound engineer Rob Spade, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jared Blumenfeld, have a week filled with courage. 